So, um, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm always in need of prayer, but I'd like to confess to you that today I'm, in, I'm exceptionally in need of prayer. Because oftentimes the Lord puts a message on our hearts that is more challenging to deliver than other times. And this evening, what God put on my heart places me at great risk of being misunderstood. And so I really need the prayers of every single one of you tonight and the power of the Spirit to navigate a, an important and sensitive topic. So I ask you to please pray with me, please pray for me, and please listen to the message tonight and the words that are said without adding you know, additional words that I don't say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord God, we glorify your holy name because you are awesome in power. You are glory. You are justice. You are goodness. You are love. And Father, from you we have derived all things that are good for the inner man. And and we're so thankful, Father, for the blessings of this weekend. And And as we've gathered here this evening, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be here this evening, speaking through the least of your servants and reaching out to convict and touch every heart for the things that we need to hear. So please, Father, bless us, help us, encourage us, convict us, and uplift us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I love this theme for Eastern Camp this year. Revive us again. Because it takes a great amount of humility to to say this, right? To, To ask God for revival is kind of an admission that I'm not where I need to be, Lord. It takes a tremendous amount of humility to ask God to revive me again. And this weekend, the brothers who have preached and those who have taught in classes, there's been a a heavy emphasis on revival from an individual standpoint, which I'm extremely thankful for, because revival begins at the individual level. However, my mind and my eyes kept going to that second word, us, us. What does that mean? Revive us again. Who is the us in this, in this banner? Is it us as, as a bunch of scattered individuals? I mean, yes, it is that. Is it us here as campers at Eastern Camp? Is it, is it those that are listening online? Is it, is it those that are part of your local congregation? Is it part of the broader fellowship? Is it part of the church that extends beyond boundaries? Like, who is the us here that we're asking about? And the Lord has laid it on my heart to focus this evening on revival of the church as a collective. So for those of you that are here, and perhaps you haven't yet converted, and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you haven't submitted yourself to him, you, I mean, please bear with me. There have been, there will be many messages that are tailored specifically for you, and on conversion, and on salvation, and this evening... The message will actually be focused on revival in the church. I really appreciate, I don't know who put this banner together. I don't know if it was David or who did it this year, but I, I, yeah, I see nodding heads. I really appreciate it because when I heard of this theme, really, this is the first thing that I thought of. The first thing I thought of was, I thought of a plant when I thought of revival. 
I thought of how uh, a plant needs all kinds of water and nutrients and things for life and sustenance in, in order to thrive. And if it doesn't have those things, that it withers and dries, dries up and it needs to be revived. And, and this is a theme that continually crops up in Scripture, beginning in the Old Testament. Israel as a nation was compared to a plant. I'd like to read a couple of verses from Hosea. The first one is Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. So the fruit he's bearing, listen, is to himself. It's not to God. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. And, and here there is an indictment against Israel as a nation because they have turned to idol worship. And the comparison here is that they are an empty vine. They are withered. They are dry, dried up. In Hosea chapter 14, there is a promise that is foretold of Israel as a nation. And it says this, Hosea 14, beginning with verse number 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon because Lebanon was known for cedars and you know that smell of cedar wood is just amazing. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. So here, God's promising that there will be a revival in Israel. There is a collective withering away of Israel. There is a future promise foretold of a revival in Israel. Let's turn to the main text tonight. If you have your Bibles, um, please follow along. We're in the Gospel according to John chapter number 15. Brother Mikey um, actually alluded to this chapter in his prayer last night. We're going to read this passage where Jesus speaks of himself as the true vine. John 15, verse number 1. Actually, before we begin, a thought. Here, I think many of us are familiar with this, the branches, we often look at the branches as, as we believers, as individuals. And, and I think that's probably the most appropriate way to look at the scripture, to be frank. But just for a moment, I want you to consider that one of those branches is represented by your local congregation, or one of those branches is represented as our broader fellowship, the Apostolic Christian Church. I want you to, to think about it in that frame or that lens as we read it through. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing." If a, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, 
and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will. Ask whatever you want, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. If you bear much fruit, you will be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. That's the end of verse number 11 of John chapter 15. Here Jesus is giving an analogy, and it's simple, but it's deeply powerful. And it's so rich and has so much meaning that we can derive from this picture that Jesus is leaving us. So the first thing, I want to make a few key observations before we kind of get into the meat of of, of how this message applies to us as a church. The first one is Jesus calls himself the vine. What does this mean? It means he is the the source of everything. He, He is what all of scripture points to. And if we look back in the Old Testament, we will see that everything that's spoken of is really pointing forward to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament and New Testament are not two separate books that are written, that are distinct. The Old Testament speaks about Jesus. And and one of my favorite examples is this one here. When Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, and they're groaning, and they're complaining, and, and, and God is just fed up with this behavior, he sends these fiery serpents to really, like, torment them. And they are suffering And they're suffering and God looks and he has mercy on his people. And he tells Moses, he says, Moses, go build yourself a statue of a serpent around a rod made of brass and go put it up on the hill and tell the people that if they want to be healed, all they have to do is look up. Okay, by the way. This is like, isn't this like the most bizarre thing in scripture where God is actually telling Moses to make a statue? You know, in almost every other place in scripture, it's like making a statue is like, you know, idolatry or there's like this harsh indictment against anybody who's making any statue of any kind. And here God's telling Moses, go make a statue, put it up, tell the people to just look at it. By the way, they don't have to do a thing. They don't have to do anything. Just believe, look at the statue and they're going to be healed. Now, this is, this is an amazing passage of Scripture, but if we look deeper into it, Jesus tells, talks about it later, and he's really ref- this is a picture of him. He says, even as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up to bring healing to the nations. So when we look in the Old Testament, we see Jesus is the vine. He is the source, and he is the source that all Scripture is pointing to. Now, we are the branches. The second, analog- the second observation here. And we must be connected to the vine in order to thrive. So think about this picture right here. And and you see this plant with these grapes. And by the way, I, I am not a gardener. I do not have a green thumb. Anything that I plant will die. Like, don't ask me for gardening advice, right? But there's some fundamental things that I know about plants. And one of those, after doing some research, is that almost all plants, and not all, there are exceptions to everything, but almost all plants have roots that are necessary for life, right? The roots 
often dig down into the ground, and sometimes they actually just live in the water, but they dig down into the ground, and the roots actually have these, these tiny fibers on them that are so small, they're like thinner than your hair, and they come off of, of, of this root where those fibers through the process of transpiration, will take water and nutrients and these different things that have to get channeled up through the plant so the plant could live. And inside of the plant, just like inside you and I, we have a vascular system where blood is pumping through. Inside of a plant, there is a vascular system where everything that the root is picking up travels through that vascular system so that going out to the extremities, which are the branches, they would have the water and the nutrients and the carbon dioxide and all of the things that they need for life. So when we say that we are the branches, this analogy is really saying like, you know, we can't live without the root. There is no life apart from the root. Jesus being the root and the vine here. Branches that are not connected to the vine are going to dry up. They're going to wither. Jesus makes the observation saying they are only good for burning. But branches that are connected, Jesus said what will happen? The ones that are connected and are bringing forth fruit, they will be purged. They will be purified so they can bring forth more fruit. We cannot, another observation, this is important. We cannot abide in Jesus and in his love if we are not keeping his commandments. So Jesus makes it clear that if ye keep my commandments, you abide in my love. This is important to remember because there's so much, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? There's such a, an attack on, 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 our, on the spiritual Christian walk to abandon Jesus' commandments in favor of something else. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Going to the last verse we read, the reason, which is verse 11, the reason Jesus shares this teaching is that we would have joy. Because if we are not connected to the vine, there will be no life and there will be no joy. So I have a question for you. Is is our church in need of revival? Is our church in need of revival? I see some heads nodding. I think something for us all to think about. I recently had an opportunity to look at some of the data of our church. And this data kind of included like total number of churches we have in the Apostolic Christian Church Nazarene. um, The total number of members and total attendance and you know, the, if any, I think the data is available to anybody who's interested, but the data suggests that over the years there has actually been a, 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 a slow but steady decline in all of these figures. Now, I want to be clear about something. Numbers don't mean everything. They don't mean everything. I mean, this place could be packed. And if it was packed by people who were lukewarm Christians or don't have, want to have anything to do with Jesus or don't want to hear the gospel, I mean, you know, if, we're, if, if, if the gospel were falling on deaf ears, it doesn't matter how many people are in this building. Numbers don't mean everything. But the data here suggests something. It suggests that, that, that maybe something isn't quite where it needs to be. And the question kind of comes up, like, why is this happening? You know, what, what is the... How is this happening? Our church has so many wonderful and amazing elements to it. We have this this sweet fellowship that we enjoy where, I mean, many of us, first of all, you know, are related some way or other, you know, especially if you have a certain last name. Like if you're like a nominee or a Bojanats, you know, you're related to everybody. 
But, you know, like many of us have these familial relationships, you know, um, many of us have these deep friendships that we have cultivated and and, and in, in brotherly fellowship over our whole lifetimes and 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 we have such great hospitality and we have such a wonderful desire to to get right into the word and and I'm so grateful for that. We 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 don't preach a, a some prosperity gospel feel good just come here and do everything. We we preach the the focus of repentance to good works to to live a holy life that pleases God so we could be like a holy living sacrifice pleasing and acceptable to the Father. There are so many wonderful things about our fellowship and so really the question kind of comes back like why is this happening? Well, I would like to submit to you that there are many false roots for revival. So when we ask the question, how will revival come? What is the root of revival? There are many false roots of revival. What is the root of, of revival for God's church? So let me, let me talk about the first false root of revival. The first false root of revival, if we observe broader contemporary Christianity, and by the way, this is not like some condemnation against what they do, but... A false root of revival is the business-like pursuit of growth of numbers. So what do I mean by that? It's this idea that, oh, in order for our church to experience revival, we just need those, those numbers that, that I referenced before. That needs to be our focus, and they need to go up, and they need to go up no matter what. Because increasing numbers means success. Remember, in corporate America, what are you looking at? You're looking at your numbers. You're looking at your sales, you're looking at your profit, and all you care about is the bottom line. Well, what's the bottom line in the church? Is it how many people are sitting in the pews? That would be a false root of revival. I heard a story, I, I, I read a book actually, by a pastor, a young pastor of a megachurch. His name was John Mark Comer. Maybe you've heard of him before. And in his book, he's describing what his life was like as a young pastor of a megachurch, always busy, frequent meetings, looking at strategic changes, looking at the data, trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to do the next thing? Meeting with people. I mean, his life was so busy, he was frequently just eating meals on the road. You know what? He said this. This was his quote. At one point, it just hit him in the face like a ton of bricks. He said this. This is his quote. It hit me like a freight train. In America, you can be a success as a pastor and a failure as an apprentice of Jesus because you can gain a church and lose your soul. In his testimony, he shared that this this focus, this focus of, of, of just this constant growth at any expense, I mean, he said, he's like, I didn't have a spiritual life of my own. I didn't have time to read the word. I didn't have time to, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And at some point, I asked the question. I said, am I really following in the footsteps of the Savior? How can I teach people to follow Jesus when I'm not following Jesus myself? And he left that church. He left it. And he started another church where he, he, he just, this is not about numbers. This is just about following Jesus. And there were those that came and they followed. And there were those that, that, that heard that mission and that clung to that. And his church actually grew, not that he was trying to. But his focus wasn't on this corporate-like pursuit of success. 
That's not where revival will come. But you know what? I don't think we have that problem here in our church. I don't think that's how our, we, we operate our church from a leadership standpoint. So what's really going on? You know, like how can we be so zealous and how can we be so excited to share God's word and, but then do so little with it? Another false root for revival is the appeal of worldliness. It, it, it's, it's to look and act and feel like the world because we want to attract them. You know, there, there's, that, there's that phrase that maybe you've heard of, tongue-in-cheek, that's like, oh, I'm going to go flirt to convert. You know, I don't know if you've heard that before. Some of you probably haven't. But anyway, there are some Christians who have this idea that, look, I'm going to go flirt with the world in order to convert them. I'm going to go be just like them and live just like them and, because I just need to share them, with them the gospel. Well, I mean, if you're not living the gospel, what does it matter if you're going to share the gospel that you're not living? I think, I think if we're honest, I think we can see that there is some of that in our church, some worldliness creeping in or worldly influences that creep in. And I mean, I, I can beg the question why. I mean, we can look in that further, but that's not really where I want to focus tonight. Maybe something to, to, to really take to your rooms and pray about if the influence of the world has been coming to you and kind of alluring you away in some way or other whether you're a brother or sister or whether you're, you're not. I'd like to go to the last, the last false route for revival because as I was examining myself, I realized what my problem is. So I would like to, sh- to kind of share a little open confession with you. I think the false route of revival that really impacts our church all too often is, sounds like this. Lord, you're in control. You can do all things. So I'm just going to sit back and I'm not, I don't have to do anything, and you're just going to make it all happen. And, and I, I would call this root complacency, because that's not what God calls me to do. I mean, God can do it all himself. I mean, rest assured, he, he doesn't need me. He doesn't need me to deliver this message. But God uses us to deliver his message. He wants us involved. We are supposed to, to go ye therefore out into the world and make disciples There is some type of involvement that we must have to this mission. So what does that root of complacency look like? What is my confession? I like air conditioning. I like a steady income. I love the city where I live in. You know, it's it's beautiful, low crime, you know, like great place to raise a family. It's great. I like I like having control over my destiny. I like making my own decisions. I like familiarity with my surroundings. I don't like going someplace new. Even when I'm driving down a road that I've never been in, it's like, you know, I'm on high alert. I'm paying attention to everything. I have no idea when the next turn's going to come. Is there going to be a stoplight? It's exhausting being in a place that you're not familiar with. I like being fami- in a place that I'm familiar with. I like being comfortable. I like being comfortable. And I think that if we were all honest, we could confess to the reality that we all like feeling comfortable. It's a desire for comfort that keeps us from abandoning our homes and our careers to go serve out in a mission field somewhere. It's a desire for comfort that keeps many of us from engaging with our neighbors to share the gospel with them. Because I don't, I don't like the discomfort of 
what they're going to say or what, how they're going to react to me later. And I have something good going on. Like, why ruin a good thing? It's the desire for comfort that compels us to esteem our customs, our practices, and our traditions probably too highly. So let me share something with you. That last one probably caught you a little off guard. You didn't know where I was going with that, right? Okay, here's my confession. I'm a very black and white person. Like, growing up, I was always like, this is right and this is wrong. It's like, my, that's how my brain works. I also grew up in a highly traditional environment. And I just became very comfortable with all the traditions that I was in. I mean, let's just be real. Like, I like going to church. I like knowing who's going to be there. I like knowing how things are going to pan out. You know, I, I don't like when somebody's there that I, I don't know what they're going to say or how they're going to act. You know, I, I like being comfortable. You like being comfortable. So when we talk about how the, the church is going to have revival, how are we going to have revival if you and I like being comfortable? It's just a natural human state. So let me continue with this story. I love tradition. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I just want to make that clear. Appreciating tradition is not an issue. We all have traditions in our families, in our church, or whatever. That's not the problem. Don't misunderstand. Remember, let's listen to what I'm saying. But I really, I love tradition as a person. And there was this one time where I was preaching a message in, in our church in San Diego. And I had just started, you know, it was like the second minute in. Church was already in progress. And the doors open up and I see a couple with two small kids walk through the back door. And I see their faces because remember, I'm facing this way, right? I can see them. As soon as the door opens, I see them walk in and they're like, they kind of have this look on their face. And I'm trying to figure out like, oh, like they look a little, they look a little uncomfortable, you know, I mean, I feel highly comfortable. They look a little uncomfortable. I can't figure out why. And then they're kind of looking where they're going to sit. Because at our church in San Diego, we still practice segregated seating in our church. And uh, by the way, a quick tangent, this sermon's not about segregated seating. If you walk away with that, you're not, you're not paying attention, okay? This is not about we should sit one way or another. That's not the point. Please listen in, to the point. The point is that we still sit segregated. And, and really, there are a lot of things I love about that. If you want to know them, come talk to me. But when they walked in through the door and they looked around and the service already started, there was nowhere to sit. You're going to walk all the way to the front and separate. And they sat in the back with kind of their heads down together. They looked really uncomfortable. And they got up after service was done and boom, out the door. I never saw them again. I didn't even have a chance to go say hi. Man, I thought, what a shame, you know, like... What a shame that someone else doesn't appreciate the thing that I appreciate. You know, everyone should appreciate what I appreciate. But the Lord really put a conviction on my heart because I had to face kind of like an, an introspective question. The question was this. It was, the Lord was asking me, you know, Mickey, you really like your tradition. Yeah, I do. What if your tradition became an obstacle? Would you give up your own comfort for someone else? Whoa. Question for you. Would you give up your own comfort? And for what? What would you trade your comfort in for? Because we're all very comfortable. What would you give in exchange for it? Man, I really wrestled with this question. Like, Lord, I, I don't like to think in that kind of a way, you know? 
You see, the problem is when the things that make us comfortable get elevated to a position where they don't belong, they're not good anymore. Traditions are supposed to be good. Let's, let's take a step back for a second here. And let me just ask you this question. You remember, we, I mean, we, we just talked about Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. God told Moses, put this statue up. It's going to heal the people. It's good. But did you ever read this one little verse in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse number 4? I'd like to read it for you. King Hezekiah becomes king. He's a good king. All the kings before him are bad kings. And you know what happened? There was revival. He wanted to start tearing down all the obstacles that were keeping the Israelites from worshiping the true God. This is what it says. Hezekiah removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. What? Why did Hezekiah break this? We just heard how God told Moses to make this brass serpent. Why, why is Hezekiah breaking it? Listen. For unto those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan, meaning a brass thing. Wow. How could something that was a blessing for the people at one period of time, divinely ordained by God, become something that was, el- that was held so dearly and elevated so highly and taken out of its context and placed in a position that it didn't belong to the point where Hezekiah said, this is an idol. This is an idol and it needs to come down. Wait, hold on. Moses put it there. We all love Moses. Nope, it's coming down. Wait, but God told Moses to put it there. Nope, it's coming down. Why? Because in that period of revival, it was clear that this thing that was once good had now become an obstacle for the people to worship God down to the root. Their roots were in the wrong place. I'm coming to the end here, but has our, here's a question to consider. And, and really, this is for me first. Because I confess to you that I am comfortable. Has our comfort become something like an idol in our lives? What do I mean by that? Has our comfort been placed to such a high level of priority that I am willing to sacrifice other things to maintain my personal comfort? The things that I am familiar with, the things that I like and enjoy... The things that make me feel safe and secure. Has that become some sort of idol in our lives or even in our church? Not that we worship it directly. It's not like we're burning incense to something, you know, like segregated seating or something. That's not what we're doing. But have we prioritized it over the voice of the Spirit? The whole point being, Lord, I don't need to ask you what you want, how you want the church to be. We already figured that out a long time ago. We already know, Lord, I don't need to listen to your spirit on matters that pertain to the church and how we're supposed to carry out a mission in a world that is ever-changing to take the gospel to a culture that is changing. You know, the only root of revival, going back to John 15, is the only root of the vine. It's Jesus Christ. And we are supposed to be like strawberry plants. Why strawberry plants? I'm glad you asked. 
Interesting thing about strawberry plants, they're almost like a weed. Like they grow up and every strawberry plant can have between 30 to 50 what, they're, what are called runners. They're like these little stems that break off and they go up to six inches away from the original plant and they actually bury themselves in the ground and they start a new plant. Isn't that amazing? Did you know that about strawberry plants? I didn't know that. I had to look that up. All these runners, they go out and they just create a new plant. And when those plants come up, there are these runners and they make like 30 new plants. And pretty soon you have like this massive field of strawberries and farmers are like, man, I got to now keep hedging my strawberry plants because they just won't stop. We're supposed to be like strawberry plants. We're supposed to be planting churches, not closing churches. We're supposed to be sowing seeds of the gospel not refraining from doing so because it makes me uncomfortable. We're supposed to be like strawberry plants because Jesus is the vine. And until he is the only root of revival, our church will have no revival. Until Jesus is the only root, there will be no revival. Don't even bother looking anywhere else. It won't come. All the statistics and numbers, and I'm not going to help you. All of the appeal to look like the world, that's not going to help you. All of the comfort and familiarity of everything that you know and love, whether it's in your home or in your church, is not going to help you. The only root is Jesus Christ. And he has to be the center of our lives. Because God is looking to purge us this evening. We are a branch on that vine. And the branch that brings forth fruit, and we are bringing forth fruit, Like, don't misunderstand the message here. Our church is beautiful. I love this church. You know why? Because the people are the church, and I love you people. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love every soul. But we are that branch coming off of that vine, and we're bearing forth some fruit. But every every branch that brings fruit, here, says John 15, is purged, and the Lord is trying to purge us that we will bring forth more fruit to his honor and his glory Because that's what it means to be a sincere disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's all, as a church, as individuals, let's get back to the root for revival. Amen. Our gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, Lord, we turn to you after the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. With convicted hearts, Lord, pricked by your spirit, challenged, Lord, Lord, we ask that this message, that the conviction of from your Holy Spirit might work deep in our hearts. All of us individually and collectively as your church, Lord, as this branch from the vine bearing fruit, Lord, we pray that you might reveal to us what might be purged, pruned from this branch, Lord, that we can draw closer to you, for this is the purpose of the church, Lord, to reach out into the world, to bear fruits, not for ourselves, not for our own comfort and enjoyment, but for you, Lord. We pray that you might find us worthy. We pray that you might find us as a church that has not left our first love, but, Lord, that we have come back, that we have come back to you, for you are worthy. Lord, we ask that you might continue to work in our church amongst us individually, convicting us and leading us to be bold with our faith, to be able to step outside of our comfort zones. Lord, for we know that the things that this life promises will fail us. 
Our jobs are not stable. Our families are not stable, Lord. We pray that no, no thing that we place our faith in, none of those things will satisfy. Only you, Lord. So we pray that you might continue to shape us into trophies of grace, that we might be able to boast of your grace and your goodness in our lives. For it is only found in you hope of life eternal. So Lord, we pray as a church that we might find revival in the only true root of revival in Christ Jesus. And for those who are not part of this vine this evening, Lord, might see into what it is like to be in the church, to be part of the vine. And we pray for those souls, Lord, that they might be encouraged that there is a purpose, that there is a meaning in this life, and that a life full of service to you might not be easy, but it is worth it. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit might continue to work in this place in the rest of this day and the rest of this week at camp and for us to always turn to you and look forward to the day where we will be with you in eternity forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.